everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Myo Minds podcast. As always, I am your host, George, and today I'm here with Dr. Christian Edwards. Christian, how are you? I'm absolutely great. Thank you, George. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm, I'm glad. I'm, I'm excited. I think some of the listeners, uh, regular listeners, will remember when I interviewed Dr. Yian Kranswick and I spoke about this a paper that he was involved in that was kind of like my bible of muscularity and you were also one of the authors on that so uh yeah I'm, I'm just I'm I'm going through I've just got to get um is it David Todd on next and then I'll have all three cross yeah. off the list yeah David Todd next I think would be a, a real contribution to, to your, your podcast and we'll extend what uh Jan and I will contribute yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah, that, obviously huge fan of, of yourself and I'm a huge fan of kind of a lot of the people who work in the muscularity world and you're a big researcher in this world. And um, I realised before when I kind of asked you to come on the pod that I've, although I've touched on the muscularity and masculinity side with Yayin, I've never really delved into it kind of, I suppose, in, in somewhat general terms, but also in the kind of like within lived experience and what it's actually like to go through this kind of stuff. Um, and I thought today could be a really good one for people who you know, don't fully understand what's going on or, or maybe have experienced this kind of drive for muscularity or this muscle, full on muscle dysmorphia itself. And um, this would be a good one to kind of give them information about it and see, you know, just kind of explore that. Uh, so I'm really excited to talk to you about that today. Yeah, and those, those sort of personal narratives, uh, most of my work, uh, my current work focuses on those narratives uh, and those those stories provide us really rich insights. So, so perhaps we can really uh, talk about some of those stories in today's podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. And as always, I'll, I can touch on my own experience as well. So just to, to start us off, Chris, um, what's, what would you say is the difference between just a kind of general drive for muscularity and full-blown muscle dysmorphia? Uh, I think that's a really good question. And I think there's been a lot of mus- misunderstanding surrounding muscle dysmorphia and muscle dysmorphia symptomology and drive for muscularity in the research literature. Um, uh, if I touch on uh, muscle dysmorphia first, so muscle dysmorphia is an obsessive preoccupation with appearing insignificantly muscular and um, is a diagnosable condition in the DSM-5. And the uh, the key difference there um, between muscle dysmorphia and the drive for muscularity, it's the preoccupation with appearing insufficiently muscular, whereas the drive for muscularity is a want for muscle. And that might be an everyday appearance concern. And a a drive for muscularity is not inherently unhealthy or inherently harmful. Um, But at some level, the drive for for muscularity may become uh, unhealthy or harmful. Mm. For example, when an exerciser 
uh, starts the gym and starts getting uh, getting muscular and, and, and really engaging uh, with uh, with the gym, that's not inherently harmful. Whereas when someone develops a preoccupation because they uh, perceive they are insufficiently muscular, that that's when it becomes problematic. Mm, yeah, so it's it's kind of that muscle dysmorphia is like the um i guess the kind of the, the step up so to speak or the kind of you know when it becomes this this serious issue um, I, if it, it's kind of a classic thing that people talk to me about is you know I, i'm always kind of pushing this narrative through my minds of you know exercise can go too far sometimes and people say well you know i just like going to the gym i just um you know i like i want to be mus more muscular i want to be um bigger and stronger and leaner or whatever um, and is that necessarily bad? And it's not, is it? It's just it's when, like you say, it becomes it becomes something else. It becomes this muscle dysmorphia. Yeah. So um, as you really identified there, George, um, the drive for muscularity is its own, on its own. If we think about how we might measure someone's desire to be muscular, it's an, it's an attitude towards muscularity. So someone's desire to be muscular, for example, I might be an athlete. And I might have a high drive for muscularity. And the focus of having that high drive for muscularity is focused not on my appearance, but it's focused on my sporting performance. And therefore, my drive for that muscle is purposeful. It's not a necessarily appearance focus, although it might be to some extent, but it's uh, there's a purposeful drive behind that uh, for athletes. And we speak about athletes in that regard. Mm. Equally, if I'm an exerciser and I'm going to the gym, my gym activity is not inherently harmful but to some extent when i start to base my identity fully on um, muscle and when i start to foreclose that identity on, on muscle and perhaps shut off other things in my life and i start to become consumed uh, by building muscle that's when the drive for muscularity can become unhealthy so mm. and what we need to realize is the drive uh, might exist on this continuum from from low to high at low levels of low levels of this desire to be muscular that's equally uh, might be associated with with unhealthy behaviors for example if i've got no desire to be muscular or i've got no desire to engage in some of the physical activity associated with muscularity it might be i lead an unhealthy lifestyle equally when i get to the extreme end of this uh, this desire there might be some ill health consequences there again so uh, to some extent, it's healthy, but what we need to really be aware of, it's at this extreme level, it might become all consuming. Yeah, and that, that kind of, it, 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 it rings true for me in regards, so we're talking about muscularity, but it almost sounds very similar to my opinion on exercise in general, in that because you know, we know that if you don't do physical activity or exercise, whatever at all, that, that can bring some kind of health risks and some actual issues just from not doing it at all. Um, but what's often ignored is the fact that if it, it can also be too much, and the both ends of the spectrum are problematic and it's finding that middle ground. And that's, that's kind of the same here with the, this drive for, for muscularity. It can be healthy to an extent and, and often is, um, but that can cover up and um, often hide the fact that when it becomes a problem when it does get to that further end of the spectrum and, and things start to to go downhill definitely and uh, that's when we we might uh, start to uh, witness some of these symptoms that might be related to muscle dysmorphia 
And yeah. a high level of drive for muscularity has been correlated with symptoms of muscle dysmorphia, but they are distinct constructs mm. because yeah. uh, a drive for muscularity, uh, when someone has a drive for muscularity, they're missing some of the other features that might be associated with muscle dysmorphia. Yeah. Um, and we could be guided by the DSM-5 criteria to find out uh, what, those, what those might be. Yeah, and that, that kind of leads me on nicely to the next question. Um, very expertly done there, Chris. Uh, <laughs> what are the <laughs> what what are the um, symptoms of muscle dysmorphia? And also, because uh, I, obviously, I do think it's a it's a problem. But I think from a lot of people's perspectives, is you know they're they're just trying to be fit and healthy. They're trying to be strong. What's what's so bad about it? Yeah, um, that's a, that's a really good question and a question I've battled with. Uh, when, sent, when submitting papers, muscle is considered as a healthy, uh, a health-related activity, and I think through this podcast today we can touch on some of them, some of those reasons as to why it's not so healthy, as to why when we get to this extreme end of the continuum that it might be uh, associated with adverse health consequences. So, as we just to define some of the symptoms of muscle dysmorphia. Uh, we could be guided by those uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And in the DSM-5, muscle dysmorphia uh, is, is located un, as a version of body dysmorphic disorder. And although it's, um, its placing in the DSM-5 has been questioned, so it's been questioned, is it a version of, a, of an eating disorder? So a male version, perhaps, of an eating disorder. Um, but currently, the DSM-5 identifies that, firstly, there's a preoccupation with appearing insufficiently muscular. So that's the, the, the primary focus of that. So the, the focus there is on being insufficiently muscular. So the, the concern there is not with uh, thinness, necessarily, although thinness and muscularity are related. The, the, the primary concern is the appearance of my muscles. Second to that, um, there is... Uh, the individual frequently gives up uh, important social and occupational uh, activities because of their want or uh, their pre preoccupation with, with building muscle, dieting strategies and other things like that. Um, there is avoidance and checking behavior that we, we see in people with, with muscle dysmorphia. Um, so, for example, I might avoid a situation where my body is viewed by others. I might engage with um, camouflaging type behaviors, such as wearing certain types of clothing, wearing a hoodie when it's perhaps quite warm outside to, to camouflage what my body looks like. Um, I might uh, engage in mirror checking behaviors. So to, to check uh, what my muscles, how my muscles appear or how my physique appears. Uh, the key thing that differs between dry for muscularity and muscle dysmorphia is that Muscle dysmorphia has a clinical, a significantly, uh, a significantly high clinical level of distress. So I have a really high uh, distress around um, my body and my level of muscularity in particular, and that causes distress in social, occupational, um, and other important areas of functioning in my life. So, uh, what this disorder uh, and uh, the significance of it is it's having an influence on my, my life. Mm. You mentioned a paper right at the start 
And, and in that paper, we reviewed uh, studies that have focused on people diagnosed with muscle dysmorphia. And what we see from those papers is that typically people diagnosed with muscle dysmorphia spend at least three hours a day uh, ruminating on muscularity or thinking about muscularity or thinking about becoming more muscular. Um, they believe they have little control over that rumination of that activity or they have little control over uh, their, their need to engage with exercise. They often trained uh, multiple times per day. Um, they often reported their exercise and diet regimes interfered with their lives. So that might include uh, job losses and relationship breakdowns. And I'll come on to explain a little bit about that uh, in a little minute, if that's okay. Uh, they generally avoided activities, people and places because of their, their muscularity concerns. So I might avoid uh, so, sort of like important family and social gatherings because I'm expected perhaps at a, let's say a marriage ceremony, a, a certain meal is served. And because that meal is served, uh, I don't know the, the, the intake that I'm gonna get from that, that meal. And therefore it's easier to avoid that situation than put myself in, in a state where I can be uh, distressed by uh, this, uh, you know, this meal that I've been given. Um, and although around half of people with muscle dysmorphia have some, some insight into the condition, many don't know, 50% uh, really don't know how, how they might start to resolve that issue. Okay, so what we've got is a, a, a real uh, level of distress around muscularity and muscularity being shown and displayed. And those numbers that I've, I've said there, they're not so real. Um, and the reason why I now do narrative type work is because I really want to listen to people's stories. And I think that's really important for practitioners because if someone's presenting with a muscularity concern, we need as practitioners to know, how's that person voice that concern? Is the way they voice the concern similar to the items we've got on questionnaires, for example? How would the person explain it in their own words? And if you're okay with that, uh, George, I'll give you a, a bit of an insight into uh, one of our papers, our life history papers, where we asked people their story, uh, to tell their story. And mm. I've picked two uh, participants in particular uh, because of their diagnosis with uh, body dysmorphic disorder. And uh, the focus, their preoccup preoccupation was on building muscle. And one uh, person in our story we called Reese, and Reese explained to us how he had made occupational choices to allow him to adopt the lifestyle that he wanted to, to build muscle. He explained uh, he was fed up of doing jobs where he had to eat one of his meals on the toilet each day. So he would have to go and, uh, with his six prepared meals, go and hide in the toilet to go and eat those meals. And so he moved to a job in security, a much more flexible job that allowed him to maintain his lifestyle. And I, I use the term lifestyle there, he, his preoccupation with being muscular. So he, he made occupational choices, he made a career choice, he made a lifestyle choice because of his drive uh, to be muscular. 
when I asked him to explain, okay, so what does your day involve? He said, and this, these are his words, I tend to be pretty lonely. I just uh, stay on my own and sit in my room. And I come downstairs and I eat and then I go back upstairs. And then I go and train and then I go to work and I pack my meals and, and, and that's my day. And then I repeat that the next day. I, I, I probed on that and asked around, because uh, I was interested in, we spoke about uh, occupational, I was interested in his social life and how his social life is influenced by this preoccupation with muscle. And he said, and these again are his words, he said, socializing doesn't help me. It doesn't help me with what I'm trying to do. And it's quite a sad thing to say when you think about it, but it's how I think. He said, I don't have a lot of friends anymore. And my ex-girlfriend used to joke about it. She said, oh, like, you're going out with your mates tonight? And I was like, no, no, of course not. I haven't got any, have I? We used to joke about it, but I really don't. So hopefully from those, those stories, you can get a, quite a rich insight in, we have these numbers around someone's preoccupied for this period of the day. We have these numbers around its social impairment, but what does that actually look like? How would someone actually explain that? Um, if I just touch on a couple of other things, if that's okay. Uh, within muscle dysmorphia, one of the symptomology we spoke about was missing important occasions. And many of the men we interviewed, so there was 20 men in this study, pretty much all of them spoke about how they managed their lifestyle so they could diet or so they could manipulate their training to, uh, and manipulate their lifestyle so they could guarantee that they could fit their workout schedule. Um, out of the 20 men we interviewed, uh, four were current steroid users. Uh, and Reese, the story I told earlier, uh, was currently taking a, 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 a banned fats, um, fat burning supplement um, and a variety of anabolic steroids. And if we speak about the health consequences of this desire or, or this preoccupation, sorry, I keep referring to it as a desire, but it's, it's far more than a desire. Across this sample of men, out of those four men, the, those four male steroid users, uh, at the time we interviewed these participants, two had just come out of hospital because of injection site injuries. Um, or injection site infections uh, because of their, their, their uh, substance use. Um, and one of the participants, uh, we call him Gavin in, in this particular study, was currently taking uh, 14 different anabolic substances per day. 14. 14 different per day. His story was really interesting because he started to speak about how he got into it but now how he doesn't come off because by coming off anabolic steroids in your head, his words, you, you become the smallest person in the world. And he, he explained to us by putting this uh, substance in your arm or wherever, wherever else, um, it makes you feel instantaneously better. Like you're doing something to allow uh, muscle uh, uh, to, to maintain muscle. He also spoke about a financial impact, and I don't think that's been mentioned in the, the muscle dysmorphia literature. So uh, Gavin explained in, in his, his training and maintaining his lifestyle cost him around 500 pounds per month 
just to maintain his training, his gym membership, his supplements, and his, his anabolic uh, substances. Um, so hopefully that gives you a bit of an insight into uh, and provides some rich detail around uh, th those figures around muscle dysmorphia. Yeah, it, re it really does. And thank you for, for sharing that, because I think, yeah, it is. It's such an important thing, and I, I really agree with you that this, the stories are so important, um, especially around something that is to do with muscularity and to do with muscle dysmorphia because of the stigma that's there, that it's just a load of you know, blokes at the gym with tattoos just like staring at their arms in the mirror like, oh, they'll be fine. And when you just read, oh, they're preoccupied, you, again, you don't quite get the sense of, of how much this impacts people and then when you actually hear you know like gavin and, and reese and you're hearing these people going through this and you know I, I i was never fully i was never diagnosed with muscle dysmorphia because I, I never went to the doctors about it and maybe that's another question i can ask you um it, but you know i i've experienced all those symptoms myself i used to you know you were talking about um i think it was reese sat on the, the toilet eating his meals i've literally done that i used to I worked in B&M in like, well, it's like a big chain shop if people who, who might not have heard it before, but I used to go on um, bathroom breaks all the time to go do um, press ups in the toilet and then like quickly shove some kind of food down me just to make sure I was constantly, like in my head, I was constantly in an anabolic point. I was always, you know, I was always growing no matter like, you know, I, I couldn't spend an hour not doing anything that was going to try and make me build more muscle. Um, and it just get, gets to that point where it does just destroy your life. And, and again, I, I resonate with the um, social aspect as well. Like I can't, I used to, it's kind of off what you were saying, but I, I used to, you know, bearing in mind, my, my mum and dad had, have like no interest in the gym whatsoever. Neither of them go to the gym. But I was, I could, I felt like I couldn't go to family events because if I did, my mum and dad would be embarrassed about how small I am which is just ridiculous because they've got, they have nothing to do with the gym, but I was, I was so, um, that rumination of, of muscularity was just constant. Um, that, you know, I, it just, I was just overwhelmed with that feeling of like, everyone thinks I'm small. I'm not big enough. I should be bigger as well. In regards to steroids, I've often said that I think it's, it's stranger for me that I, never took steroids i think it's weirder that like why didn't i take them compared to why i did because i was so obsessed with it and i think we often ask you know, well why are people taking them i think the people who are in that world it's more it's more crazy to me that people some of them don't take them because it just seems like the most viable option almost and i'm not condoning it but you know i can i can see i've been in that position and i can see why it's so attractive i i was fortunate that one of the the one of my best friends who I was training with, um, he had taken everything under the sun. He'd probably taken you no know, similar to, um, I think you said it was Gareth who took 14 a day. Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. you know, and he told me all the side effects and all the negative things that had come along with it. And I think that's what put me off or kept me away from it. Um, but yeah, I think it's more, uh, yeah, thank you for sharing the stories. Because I think it's, I think it's so important mm -hmm. that we show people that these aren't just some blokes looking at their arms in the mirror like these people's lives are actually getting ruined yeah and i think we need to move away from that muscularity is kind of a vain appearance thing yeah. so a vain appearance motive it, yeah. it's not it's connected it's fundamentally connected to the person's identity 
And if something is so important to someone's identity, as soon as an event or interaction happens that is a threat to that, I'm I may become more engrossed with that uh, with that um, behavior or, or or that that preoccupation. Um, I I really um, I'm interested in you know the why people don't take steroids because I've also been exposed to this culture. The reason why I started researching this area was um, back in 2008. Uh, I was playing rugby for a team in South Wales. Um, I don't have a, a, the biggest figure. Um, in fact, I, I'm probably one of the smallest rugby players you will see. And I was exposed to bodies that I was physically much smaller. And within those dressing rooms, within those cultures that I was exposed to, um, many of the players would, would use supplements, but also anabolic uh, steroids. Uh, and fundamentally for, for rugby performance, there was really little benefit. They were all already big and muscular and, and muscular enough to, to play rugby, certainly at that standard and, and, and certainly rugby at a higher standard. They were, they were functionally big enough. And it, it, it's likely that actually they're, by growing it increasingly in size, actually that probably negatively influenced the actual performance in that game. Um, so I've also experienced that world and that's how I got into uh, researching what I do now. Yeah, I think what you said, especially about taking it away from from muscularity being all about that like you're kind of loving your own body, like like this like obsession about like narcissism or you know this um, you know this, yeah. this negative connotation. I think we really need to get away from that because uh, I think that's the reason why I didn't, or one of the reasons why I didn't feel inclined to go to the doctor about it because I'm I'm almost certain I would have been diagnosed if I did, but I just never bothered because i just like thought that's not it's just not the same thing like when you're in that like muscly muscle world muscularity world um it's just you you kind of feel because you know that stigma's there you know everyone thinks you're a bit of a, like obsessed with your physique knobhead and you have to you almost kind of want to live up to that you don't want to go out of that because that's better than what is actually going on i don't want to say oh actually no i'm not obsessed with how i look because i think i look great actually i'm terrified that i'm worthless and then this is the only thing i've got and you don't because of that you don't you don't want to admit to it being that when people everyone thinks you you just think you're awesome um and i think that's that's one of the reasons why we really need to break this down i got a bit emotional even saying that because i think that's so that's so true that you know i was terrified to 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 own up to actually what you think is is true actually it's way more sad than that <laughs> like that, that that was that's a terrifying thing yeah and i really resonate with with that through through my experiences of um feeling a lot feeling a lot smaller and engaging is in as many gym training behaviors and supplement use behaviors as i could to actually put on physical size um it's it's that feeling of difference but also um in, in Western society, certainly, muscle is seen as a really positive thing. If we saw someone that's hypermuscular versus someone that's, uh, for example, got anorexia nervosa on uh, two pictures, and you asked who who is unhealthy, who would experience ill health Ill, Ill health consequences for, from their from their exercise or their eating behaviour, 
And we would see perhaps a similar story for both those people, but it's not realized within, certainly within Western contexts. Mm. Yeah, you're, you're right. Yeah. And I, I know there's, um, there's a case study from, I think it's um, Stuart Morrie and et al who looked at someone who had who'd gone from like thinness orientated towards muscularity and they've been misdiagnosed because, because if you look, if, if, a, you know, for doctors, and I kind of, I kind of get it, like you say, because of the Western world we're in, if someone walks in and they're absolutely jacked and, you know, like, you're not going to think like, oh, there's some, you know, we should test them for health benefits because that's just not what's promoted in media, is it? It's, it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm using the kind of um, slang terms there just to kind of show the emphasis on it. You know, someone walks in and they look like, you know, hench. Like, you know, you're not going to think, oh, I need to check in for something. You're just going to, you're going to, you know, I don't know. You just, you just don't, that narrative's not there, is it? You don't think I should check for this. And, and, and that's from what we've seen in the literature anyway, that, that is what's happening is doctors are just going, oh, like, there's no point testing his heart or or anything like he looks great so it'll be fine um yeah yeah and I, I think there are very few uh stories around interactions with uh with doctors and practitioners uh some of Stuart, Stuart Murray's work is absolutely fantastic work um certainly uh, the work the, the narrative of um thinness to muscularity orientated body image that was a really fantastic paper that gives us a real rich insight but there's a very relatively few studies that actually focus on uh, participants with a clinical disorder. Most have focused on uh, student athletes or psychology students. And really those participants are not clinically concerned mm. around, they don't have a, a significant preoccupation with being insufficiently muscular. And therefore yeah. we, we might be basing the evidence base we've got in this area at the moment I think there needs to be more studies like Stuart Murray's work that have actually worked with people who experience this distress to understand what it's actually like. Um, the men that have had approached um, formal help in our work, um, we had two men that had approached formal, uh, sought formal help. Um, one was for an injection site injury and the doctor's reaction was, you need to stop taking steroids now. They're bad for your health. Um, you're here because you've taken the steroid, you've got this injury and you need to stop right now. And his response was, I'm leaving the hospital. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm off. See you later. That's um, kind of like, sorry to put in, but that's kind of, it's kind of like someone, someone with anorexia coming in and just saying, oh, you just need to eat more. Just start eating more and you'll be fine. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work. It's not that easy. Yeah, exactly. So it, it, it's a really, you know, you, you can't just stop. You know, it's it's it, saying stop is perhaps the the worst thing that doctor could have done. Um, in fact, uh, that participant told a story of how they assigned another doctor to him, who started to understand and and, and you know they sat down with him and asked, explain explain your background. You know, um, tell us what what your your focus on muscularity, and they actually really spoke to him about that. And another participant identified that they sought help um, because their, their partner had prompted them to. Um, he only went to one session and his response was, they didn't tell me anything that I didn't already know. So I think there is a gap uh, surrounding how people help seek for these, these preoccupations. Um, mm. In our work as well, uh, 
people had, had sought help from significant others. So for example, uh, speaking to a parent about it, some of the participants in our research were actually made to feel more uh, insignificant because of the interactions with their parents. Mm. So one of the participants sort of mentioned at school, he was called a certain name that influenced his body concerns. He went home, told his dad about it, really wanted to talk to his dad, to his dad about it. And his dad started to call him the same names as he was called at school. So mm. is that, that um, those dysfunctional interactions um, influenced the participant not only at school, but also at home when he was trying to seek help for that. And that really reinforced this participant. Actually, you know, that kind of man up sort of message, you know, you should be able to deal with these, you know, ideas. Um, and it reinforced actually, you know, why, why should I seek help? I should deal with this myself. Yeah. And it's a, it is a really interesting point, the fact that um, around this kind of help seeking and um, the, because I think if you ask people who experience muscle dysmorphia and, and maybe let's say specifically the the eating behaviors, so things like bulking and cutting or the, the cheap meals and the cheap days, it's like severe binge eating and then severe restriction and that kind of stuff. If you ask them objectively, do you think that's healthy? They would say, I can know it's not. And I know that the amount of training isn't that isn't healthy and the, the way that I'm trying to be isn't healthy or taking steroids. I know that isn't healthy. But then if you said to them, so would you try and get help for it? They'd be like, no, <laughs> like, why, why would I, why would I do that? Yeah. I think there's also, uh, that narrative does exist. Um, mm. and I think there's also another narrative as well, uh, to that they to some extent realize it's unhealthy but also if i compare for example if i was a person using steroids and a person who was engaging with all this this dieting and cutting i might compare that and make comparisons to the general public and say well i don't drink alcohol well mm. i don't smoke uh, actually my my diet's really healthy i i eat fish chicken and rice that's actually a really healthy diet Actually, by taking steroids, uh, you know, that's helping me. I'm maintaining my level of uh, this um, hormone in my body or whatever. So there, there is other rationales where uh, certainly participants rationalized these by, by making generalizations against the public mm. around all the other unhealthy behaviors. So, uh, yeah, to some extent, I think there's a couple of stories we could tell from that. Mm. where people are making comparisons to rationalize you know why it's not unhealthy there isn't an evidence base around steroid use for example that suggests it's unhealthy mm. we don't have longitudinal studies on steroid users um because that research hasn't developed and hasn't been able to develop yet yeah it's, it is it's very interesting i'm kind of i'm worried i'm just gonna we're just gonna start going into like nerding out about this so i'm gonna bring us back to the <laughs> questions <great>. um <laughs> just for the sake of people listening um so what would you say uh, kind of going back to square one and these people who who don't currently have this drive for muscularity or at least just people who you know someone's born and and as they grow up what do you think it is that influences people towards wanting to be muscular or you know this 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 muscularity drive that could potentially become muscle dysmorphia or these you know these have these issues 
Brilliant. So it's a, it's a really good question. Um, and across the research literature, we could look at the various perhaps antecedents that lead someone to have this, uh, have a desire to be muscular. Um, and as I mentioned before, having a desire to be muscular is not an unhealthy thing. In, in fact, it's, it's perhaps uh, to some extent a healthy desire. Um, but just like, as we've mentioned before, losing weight or dieting may have health risks. You know, in general, if I go on a diet, if I take that too far, then it potentially has health risks. Um, so at some level, what the point I'm trying to get across is at some level, this is really healthy enhancing. When it might become problematic, um, and we can speak about some of the experiences that might lead someone to have this desire. And Yayan spoke about a number of masculine characteristics that people are exposed to. And an important point to highlight, it's not only uh, the large majority of people affected by muscle dysmorphia and that have an extreme desire for muscle are men, but this, this condition also, uh, there are women that also experience this condition. But we can, and in our work, we speak about like pathways to a, a high level of drive for muscularity. We speak about this, this idea of, uh, of masculine capital. And certainly in our work with men, we speak about the idea of masculine capital. Now, people have various forms of capital in their life and or power in their life. And what we know from our research is these, these men in our, our research were exposed to events and interactions that made them feel uh, that they had less masculine capital or that they, for example, they experienced bullying, they experienced uh, dysfunctional social interactions, such as interactions with their father, that I mentioned before. They, they had perhaps non-normative physical characteristics, or they were made to believe they had non-normative physical characteristics. Um, that led them to realize that I don't fit in with these other men in my social group. And what we found that uh, for, for this particular group of men was they got to the age of 16 to 18 and they didn't they didn't realize what was what was their what was their unique characteristic what what would they base their capital on and in our work we speak about and we frame within identity theory we speak, speak about uh, identity confusion and what we mean by identity confusion is, I don't know who I am or who I can be, almost. So I haven't had the opportunities to develop uh, uh, that knowledge. And what we identified for, for the men in our sample is um, they start to develop their, their sort of masculine capital through you know, locating themselves with the ideas they'd picked up from their society that men should be uh, have this hegemonic muscular image. This is the image we've been seeing in the media. This is the image we've been exposed to at school that men should be tough, men should look like this in a certain way. And that was the story uh, uh, told by those men. Um, I, coming back to your question, so the exact uh, focus of your question was 
is it centered on when does drive muscularity become problematic or so I, I it's kind of yeah i guess that we've already you've touched on what the the influence is what it is that influences people you're saying is, is these hegemonic ideals and maybe this non-normative non body or whatever whatever it is they think but yeah i guess my, my next question is you know when when does when does that drive then so that's when it starts and then when when does that I guess the flick switch, when do they cross the line? When does it become an issue? Okay. Sorry, I missed that on the on the um on the previous. So when does it become an issue? It's a really good question. And um in our research, we we speak about uh drive muscularity on this continuum, and we speak about a continuum from intimacy to isolation. And what we uh, have termed that in our research is it's a social interaction continuum. So when I first get into training in the gym, I might do that because my friends are going to the gym and therefore I'm being intimate or developing relatedness with other people that go to the gym. My friends, I'm developing uh, relationships with them and becoming having a toned body might help you within other relationships that I might have. So it might help in, for example, sexual relationships that I have, because I've got a physique that looks, that might, might be more attractive. So at that level in that continuum, I might uh, develop a desire to be muscular because I want to develop relatedness with other people. As we raise up, as my, as I get into the gym, so, there I've been introduced to the gym. I've started to develop relationships in that context. But when I get into that gym, uh, and I'll get into the gym, uh, as we term in our research, the gym field, uh, there's often ex an exposure to kind of a new ideal. There are new behaviors that perhaps I weren't aware of before I went into that context. Um, there's a new way of looking, for example there's a different level of masculine capital. So the person that holds the most capital in the gym perhaps is the person that can lift the most or the person that looks the best. So to develop my capital in that context, I might start to adopt the behaviors, the routines, the, the workout schedules of the other people in that context. And by developing relatedness in that context, I start to adopt the behaviors that other people are adopting. So I might start to adopt and uh, are doing certain training routines, certain, certain supplements perhaps, because those are the norms in the gym environment. Um, and that helps me build relatedness in that context. But what I'm starting to do is I might be starting to, to, to shut off other connections and form connections in, in the gym context. So my drive for muscularity grows my intimacy perhaps outside, I start shutting off relationships that don't support my drive for muscle. Mm -hmm. So um, what we've got as the drive for muscularity increases, my focus on my body project increases. Okay, so I start to, and, and Reese's story from earlier today, Reese had started to shut off relationships that were outside the gym context because they didn't support what he wanted to be. Socializing doesn't help me, he said. They, it doesn't help me with what I want to be. They're, so he's shutting off, he's becoming more isolated from social context. But uh, because he's starting perhaps to foreclose his identity, 
and shut off his identity on one thing, muscle, the gym. And that's perhaps, um, and we speak about, we, we use identity theory within our work, and we speak about this idea, idea of identity for closure. So when I close off my identity on one thing, when this one thing becomes the most important thing to me, when this one thing becomes the most precious thing to me, then, then uh, the drive might be, become uh, more problematic. Here, um, I might start to build relationships. So there might be some level of intimacy, but those relationships perhaps might be with the people that reinforce my behavior. So I might develop gym, gym friends or training partners or someone that reinforces that behavior and support is a supporter of this. Mm. Um, and I might start to shut off uh, the, the, those other things. Um, so to go back all the way to your question, when does muscularity become a problem? Um, the, 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 key, the key transition to uh, the problem is when muscularity becomes one of the most important aspects of the identity. Mm. When I basing, I'm starting to base my identity on that one thing, because as soon as I start to base my identity on that one thing, um, perhaps that thing becomes very precious to me and, and therefore I will protect it and I'll try and maintain it in whatever way I can. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. No, it does. That makes thank, sense. Yeah. Thank you for that. It is. I think, I think once you're in there, it you saying about how you, you, you start to make friends within the gym and it starts to become your kind of, it becomes your entire social world. It reminds me of research that's recently just been put out by, I think it's Doyle et al, but I know Russell Denderfield's in it. You might have heard, uh, you might have um, seen his yeah. work and, um, and it came about, they were looking in athletes and they saw that the social circle just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And eventually there's, you know, you've just got, um only athletes around you so you know everyone around you is acting in a certain way so it just kind of strengthens that this is the only way to do it so as you get further into the world the harder it is to come out of it um and that kind of leads me on to my my next question which is you know when people are in this 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 world or in this situation you know, how do you think can reduce those negative effects either in ourselves or in people that were, were worried this is going on for yeah. Uh, so firstly, to, to this question, I'll, I'll just highlight, I'm not a clinical psych. Uh, I, I, I've taken a, uh, a sport and exercise focused uh, approach to, to all our work and our, all our, uh, our work is provided uh, and the research is provided uh, with, with that background. Um, but, but some of the things I will say from, from our research, uh, there's, there's a few things I'll bring up. Uh, firstly, uh, we might ask ourselves some reflective questions. We might ask ourselves, what are what are, are our motives for training? What do I want from this? We might ask ourselves, what are the standards that we evaluate our own appearance? And I use the, the term appearance, uh, really I'm meaning identity. What, what, what we, who are we comparing our identity to? Is it other men in the gym? Is it the media ideal we've been exposed to? Um, so who are we making those comparisons to? And uh, thirdly, uh, a key critical question is, how much time are we devoting to this? And 
what that might really help us with is to identify how this desire is influencing our, our, our everyday well-being. Because uh, without really reflecting on those things, uh, we won't really realize how this, how this may be having an influence. How is it influencing my lifestyle outside of the gym? Um, to some extent, that might increase our obsession with, uh, or our preoccupation with building muscle because I'm, I'm centering on my obsession, my, my, my preoccupation there. So to some extent that might, uh, might increase that. And there are a few other ways because that helps me really become aware of, is it an issue? Is this just a healthy desire to be muscular or is it impacting on my everyday life? Um, so that, that kind of, those reflective questions help identify whether it's a problem or not. Um, we might also, so from our observations from the paper that I've, I've mentioned today, we might also look to broaden our identity. And by broadening our identity, uh, what I mean there is we could pose other questions such as what do I value as, as a person? So we can ask broader questions, not just about the gym. What do I value as a person? What do I want to be perhaps known for? What, what do people want to know me for? And uh, Dr. Rob uh, Wilson has a really excellent set of self-help guides, certainly on, on uh, body dysmorphic disorder. And what he suggests within that, uh, one of those self-help guides is taking mus muscularity out, out of the driving seat. And what fundamentally I, I think he's saying there is we need to broaden that identity. So take the focus away from muscle and, and focus more broadly on who I am and what I can be. Um, so a couple of recommendations there. So firstly, those reflective questions help us get to, is it an issue? Second, taking muscul muscularity out of the driving seat. Thirdly, I think we could, instead of focusing on the physical appearance, we could focus on fun the functional rather than focusing on what my bicep looks like and what my chest looks like in the mirror. We're never gonna, never gonna have an objective view of that. We're, we're looking through our own lenses at that. And by taking a functional view of that, by focusing on um, the weight perhaps on the bar, I can lift this amount of weight. I'm taking a functional view. I'm it's in a more objective view of, uh, of what I can see. So moving from that physical to that functional is really important. Fundamentally as well, uh, I think we can talk more. Um, males generally are, are not very good at talking. Certainly uh, I in the past, when I was experiencing the concerns around my body as an 18 year old, I wouldn't have mentioned it to anybody at that, that point in time. Now I'm, I'm much more open with those sort of things. Uh, we can start to talk about those concerns with our peers, with our peer groups, with the people you're training with in the gym, for example. You'll be amazed perhaps how many people in that gym are experiencing similar concerns. It's, it's, it, it's, not, um, it's not a unique thing to, to us. We're not the only ones experiencing these, these issues. So we can start to talk more. And I, I think one thing presenting, uh, preventing that, historically, if we, 
we attach appearance to um, appearance is traditionally seen as a female concern. And by talking about appearance, it's, it's often seen as, as a female concern. And therefore, you know, the, the, these idea of, of being masculine haven't, uh, haven't really, uh, you know, they, they don't equate uh, very well with uh, this appearance concern. So I think we can break down some of those boundaries by, by just talking more to, to our peers. Um, we could help our peers also seek formal help. Um, for example, where, where, uh, where we live in Worcester, there's an excellent mental health service, uh, Worcester Healthy Minds, uh, excellent mental health service in, in the local area. If I'm a university student, uh, all the universities that I'm aware of have a really excellent uh, counselling and mental health service where we can signpost and support people, uh, our peers or ourselves, uh, to, to go to those services. Um, I'll touch on a few other points if that's okay. Um, yeah. Um, I just want to touch on some of the research surrounding guidelines for practitioners. Um, because some of that research suggests that we should direct men to develop, uh, to move away from uh, their preoccupation with muscularity by developing more healthy masculine behaviors. And I'm not aware what a healthy masculine behavior might be and what level of healthy masculine behaviors might be prescribed, uh, uh, what might be endorsed by a practitioner, and what, what's the frequency intensity of this healthy masculine behavior will be required in order to see some beneficial health consequences. So what, what I really uh, push in my, in my research, we really, really need to sort of challenge this, the idea of this perfect physique, the idea that one's success in society is associated with physical appearance. So I would suggest that practitioners, and this is only from my research insight, I'm not, I'm not a clinical uh, practitioner, or, uh, and this is from my sport exercise background, we need to start to challenge some of these hegemonic ideals that we're exposed to in society. We, we need to challenge those and you know help help men in a more healthy way to 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 realize their potential and what i gathered from what you were saying there you know this idea of these these guidelines of you move people towards more healthy masculine ideals but then it's like you know how much of those should they have and how do we guide them towards it's not it's not like an objective thing um and it's something that i struggle with a lot because it's it's you know i think masculinity is isn't necessarily a bad thing um there are bad things that are, are attached to it when it gets to a, a bad when it gets to a point but there are certain aspects of masculinity that are really positive for people the same way that there are certain aspects of muscularity that are really good for people i think certainly more research is needed within the area with people that have a preoccupation um mm. and not just uh, convenient samples yeah yeah but one of the key questions I think important to answer is how do we support uh, others with this preoccupation? So we, we've spoken about supporting the self, so asking those reflective questions, talking more. How do I support one of my friends, perhaps, that comes to see me in the gym uh, and with those appearance concerns? Mm. Um, I, I think certainly uh, for me, one of the, the fundamental things we have to do is 
become aware of ourselves um, and aware how my own appearance and, and my appearance concerns um, and how important they are in my life. Because by becoming self-aware and becoming aware of my own concerns, I'm in a better position to help anybody else uh, with theirs uh, or, or their own concerns. I, I work with a lot of uh, coaches and teachers and what we might think about for coaches and teachers as well is, as we've, we've mentioned, moving from the physical uh, towards the functional, they might also think about that in their feedback. The amount of times that you, you hear coach commentary that focuses on the physical rather than, you know, how the person, how skillful that, that the person is, I think it's really important there as well. Um, they can also promote the message that the, you know, what people are comparing themselves to. They can broaden those identity by identifying that, you know, the physical self is just one thing people base themselves on. We have identity, identity is a multidimensional thing. You know, we are not fixed just by our appearance. Yeah, that, that's something I, sorry to put in again, but that, that's yeah, something that I um, I really resonate with. And as you were going through those, your kind of um, what you found in your research to be the things that might might help people, they're very much the same of, of how it, what's helped me. You know, I identifying that the issues were there, I did that through counselling and that was also where I kind of, you know, I got my, my talking started. Um, and then, yeah, a really a huge thing for me and something I still practice to this day is reminding myself of other things that I like about myself because so much of it is tied into this self-worth and you know like you know, deep down the my my core my core understanding of myself is that I'm a piece of shit and that I don't I'm no I'm not I've not got any worth and what I used to do was to to mask that is let's just get as massive as muscular and just force myself into this world and that's where I'll find my value um, and, you know, whilst I'm, I'm working on this kind of self-narrative of who I am and how I'm worthy and a good person with my counsellor, and that is getting better. But in the, in the meantime, whilst I'm doing that, I'm also you know, sharing that um, sharing that uh, worthiness or that capital that we spoke about, you know, getting that that capital or that, you know, that that score of, of being a good person or a worthy or whatever from other aspects, because then if, if one of them goes, I've got several other, because when it's just in the gym and just in the way, how muscular you look, if one day you miss a gym session, all of a sudden your entire, the, the whole thing that makes you a good person is gone. And you know, you just, you're nothing. Um, so you need, you need to spread out. Um, and yeah, as I'm saying that, I'm you know, it's kind of reminding me that, that, I, I always promote that message and I have done for so long with people, I say for so long, but since I've started Maya Minds, it's been about two years now, I've been promoting that idea of, of expanding that. Um, but I think it's so it's so much harder than that. And, and that paper that I mentioned earlier about those athletes within the smaller circle, it like if you go up to someone and say, oh, you just need to, you need to find these other things about you that are good other than the gym. But everyone around them, I'm just thinking about me, you know, all my friends were, were gym friends. 
every day I watch YouTube videos of Ronnie Coleman, Dorian Yates, all the like pro bodybuilders. Like what I watched, I watched hours of their what they ate in a day, their big training sessions. I could quote half of them. There was there's videos of Ronnie doing lifts in the gym, Ronnie Coleman, and I can I can quote exactly what he says as he's walking up to the bar, as he's getting his knees wrapped. I know it off by heart. I've seen it that many times. How can you tell that person? Oh well, actually, maybe there's other stuff that's important. You like. No, it's not. Like as far as you're concerned, you're just like there obviously isn't it. And I think it is so much harder than that. And that's where, um, yeah, like you'll. I think I think we need to start going from the bigger organisations and the uh, the people who can influence these people, the people who are kind of top of these hierarchies in the gym. You know, the people who are influencers and the people who are coaches, the people who have this power of, um, yeah, influencing. The people within the community that's where we need to go to and we need to start breeding this idea of like you're saying this functionality and this more than just this they would i used to always talk about these definitions kind of moved on from that now but my mind used to always talk about these definitions of ourselves and i'm more than just the, this definition of a gym go where i'm i'm all these other things i think that's really important yeah i i, I really think uh, all of that is, is really important. I think when we foreclose and shut off our identity and when one thing becomes so important to us, doesn't matter what that thing is, it, it can be associated with, with unhealthy, uh, unhealthy preoccupation. Mm. Um, we speak, we've spoken about some of our really early work uh, around um, muscularity drives being kind of a compensatory behaviour. Mm. how we're perhaps compensating for some other aspects of our lives, perhaps and need to not met in one aspect of our life. And we, we spoke about how there are various compensatory behaviours and muscularity is just, just one, of, one of those. But I, I also really agree um, that it's really difficult to challenge these, these, these core beliefs and actually when we... And becoming aware of those core beliefs as well is really, really difficult. But touching on, on the, the point of these influences and, and the media and, and other factors like, like that, I, I do think there needs to be a, a kind of a structure. There is a structural issue here. This is not just a, an issue of what we could call an issue of agency. It's not just the men making or the, the gym training population making these decisions. They are influenced by the structures they sit within. They're, interest, um, they're influenced by cultural factors, interpersonal factors, psychological, uh, social factors. Um, but I think there's a key message that needs to be uh, promoted here is muscle in Western society is associated with health. And I, I think the key change needs to be that muscle is not always a positive thing. It does have positive, a positive influence to some extent, but like any behavior, we could be speaking about any behavior, any preoccupation, any desire here, when we take any desire to an extreme level, it may be associated with ill health consequences. And I think we just need to challenge uh, the, that idea that muscle is a really positive uh, thing. To some extent it is, but it is associated with, with ill health consequences. I think we also need to challenge uh, 
something I said earlier, that muscle is associated with a vain appearance motive. It, it, it's not, it's, it's fundamental to identity. Um, it, it, it's fundamental to um, uh, to, to many, many, many people's lives, certainly it was fundamental to my life at, at that point. And with, it wasn't surrounding uh, appearance, is a surrounding muscle provided an avenue to deal with, with all these other core beliefs that I was experiencing at that time. And therefore, those beliefs that I was experiencing at that time. Therefore, um, to label it as an appearance uh, motive and an appearance thing, it, it's just what people can see. It's just the front stage that we can see. Whereas this, this backstage, what's happening inside and why we're doing all these things, that, that's that's really fundamentally important. I think that's one of the biggest differences between the thinness orientated and the, the muscle orientated is, is now, I think, because thinness is now associated with anorexia and everyone, you know, that has its issues as well, the fact that anorexia is promoted so much and that's so kind of in the media because it means that other forms of eating disorders are kind of getting... Um, ignored or not represented as well and obviously anorexia isn't just people who are really thin but you know, that's a whole different story but um because because we have those connotations with thinness now that's not seen as narcissistic i feel like in the past it may have been um and i think we need to get that some parts of that narrative going with muscularity as well and the fact that if it's not it doesn't just mean that you're you're so confident now and feeling amazing and and stuff it can be other things there can be other reasonings behind that um yeah it's just it's such a, a difficult um, one to traverse but it's such an important change that needs to happen and i think the solution is not just there's just not one thing that will solve this it's it's multi-dimensional and, and and multiple factors will influence these things um for example, most uh, most of the early body image literature pointed its finger at, at media, at, at the media, and the media to some extent does play a role here, but it's not the only role. It's not the only thing playing a role. Um, yeah, I agree one hundred percent. And everyone is exposed to that media. Everyone, well, those that have access to media, um, those that are Instagram, Facebook, and, and all those other um, media outlet users, everyone is exposed to that, but not everybody develops a preoccupation with their body. So the media does play a role, but it's, there's a bigger set of interactions that are happening, happening surrounding the media that also that contribute to why people are developing preoccupations, why people are developing... Um, you know, unhealthy uh, related body image. Uh, but just, just on, that, on that point, the media does play a role. And I think the media does have a responsibility, therefore. And we see it's happened and is happening in, in, in thinness-orientated body image, um, but not so much in muscle-orientated body image. We see, for example, there's a really popular TV program happening at the moment. Um, Every contestant on that TV program is expected to wear a certain type of clothing. Um, and I think the program, you, you'll, you'll be aware of the program that I'm speaking about. So Love Island, uh, yeah. all of the people on that program have an appearance that looks like 
an Adonis or, you know, uh, the shape of those appearances will influence, you know, or may influence people's uh, self-perceptions in some way. And it might be the interactions they, ha they have with those. So I, I think a normalized set of bodies. So Channel 4, for example, had a series called Naked Beach, which normalized the bodies we see on TV, where, mm. you know, programs like Love Island, what we're connecting Love Island to is uh, it, the clues in the title that by having this physique, it's associated with relationships with other people. Yeah. And that's, that's perhaps not the, the best message that the, the media should be promoting. Uh, yeah, I agree. And that kind of, it kind of links to what I was talking about with um, Yayan on his podcast. And also as we talked about today, that kind of masculine ideal and stuff and a big, often a big part of masculinity um, or this kind of, you know, that, that side of it is the ability to get into a relationship to attract someone. Um, and if we tie in that, you know, not only does um, muscularity give you that masculinity because of the the work ethic it promotes, or the just the size, or the the strength, or whatever it is, but also it's also going to bring in relationships and it's going to make people love you. Um, so you know, if if again, if you like like me, if you're using muscularity as a way to promote self worth. You know, that's another way of saying, you know, obviously you're more worthy if you're more muscular because also loads of women are going to want you or whoever, you know, people, people are going to want you. So obviously you're more worthy this way. Yeah, that's one of the dominant messages that we perhaps need to start to challenge is, you know, uh, and I don't know necessarily how, how this would be challenged, but, you know, the, the idea that muscularity is associated with these benefits it's not necessarily associated with those those benefits at all. So, yeah, uh, yeah um, I, I think that those are some of the things um, that we really need to challenge. But also, um, there also needs to be the resources to challenge these things. So, young people more than ever are exposed to images. I wasn't exposed to the same images that young people are. Now, when I when I was growing up, I wasn't exposed to social media in the same way, and I th I think in lessons like PHSD and, and and other school lessons, you know, there needs to be other resources that reflect uh, body body image related awareness, and that needs to include a also include interventions surrounding men uh, and surrounding the, the male the male ideal. Um, there are some great resources. Um, I'm a member of the Men and Boys Coalition and they've got some great resources. Um, and I can share those in, in the notes if you like. But also the Dove Self-Esteem Project uh, also has some really great resources for teachers, um, uh, sort of focusing on the, fun, the functional body and what the body can do. And I think those resources will be really helpful too. Mm, yeah, that, they do sound, they sound very useful. And I, I'd, I'd love for you to send me the links to them so I can put them down below in the description um i am noticing that we've been speaking now i try and keep these to an hour and we've been speaking for an hour and 20 minutes and um, i feel like i could keep speaking forever but i'm gonna start to wrap things up now um okay. with the final three questions um are you okay for me to go with them could i just touch on one thing before we we do that Yes, of course. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, as well, 
uh, along with the other things we've mentioned, I, I think also there needs to be some more work uh, surrounding harm reduction uh, for anabolic steroid use. Mm. Um, so the, the number of anabolic steroid users are growing um, and people will continue to use anabolic steroids. So I, I think there needs to be some more work at, and Jim McVeigh's uh, and team up at uh, Manchester Metropolitan University are doing some really great work in that area around harm reduction. And I, so I think there needs to be more work in that in that particular area. Mm. Yeah, that, that is. Sorry. No, no, <laughs> I, I, kind of, I kind of makes me makes me want to. I want to talk about it a bit more now. But um, yeah, I think I think um, yeah, I think because it's got again, it's that stigma, isn't it? It's it's seen as as yeah, the society sees it as wrong and it's a narcissistic thing. And um, I think because of that, we they don't feel like help helping it. Like I feel like dr- other forms of drug use. Um, you know, maybe that's quite an interesting thing. It's not something I thought about, but there's narratives about different drugs, isn't there? And maybe because of the narratives, that makes people um, more likely to help with prevention and for care if people are taking them. So there might be certain drugs that are associated with um, people who are kind of, you know, at the you know in the in, a, in the shit, so to speak. And you only, only take those drugs if you're in like a really bad place and therefore will help you. You know, I can't, I don't, um, I think of an example like crack or something. I don't know. I'm just thinking like on movies and stuff, you know, because that's associated with people living on the street or going through something really bad, then okay, well, we'll come up with ways to help those people. But then there'll be other drugs that are associated with like partying or something like, like cocaine or something like that. And they're like, well, well those people that are just, being knobs so we won't help them as much so there's less help for them and then there are ones like steroids where it's just like oh they're just doing it because they want to look good like and then we just think oh screw them like we're not gonna help them they're just doing it because they want to look good isn't that isn't that strange that seems like a, insane and when you put it like that well that seems to be the the case i don't know if you agree with me i've literally just pulled that out of my ass so it might be i might i, just, oh, I might disagree with that, that. no it, it sounds incredibly <laughs> i agree entirely um and we don't know the risks of, uh, of anabolic steroid use. We, we know some of the risks, but you know, we don't have an extensive amount of research on that area so, so far. Um, also, much of the research, certainly in the sport and exercise literature, has come from the sport domain where anabolic steroid use is illegal and it's criminalized, and so which has prevented, you know, there's been a hidden behavior for uh, a lot a long time. It's still a still a hidden behavior but um, which has pre- prevented perhaps some of the research progression perhaps in that area. Mm. So, yeah, but it's, sorry, that was a, just a point to highlight before we yeah, move on. No, yeah, th- thank you for listening. So I'm glad you did because I think that's a really, really good point. Um, so the final three questions, I ask everyone these final three questions. So the first one is a person, either real or fictional, who inspires you? Uh, sorry, I've cheated a bit. On, I'll, I'll, I'll Everyone cheat cheats. Everyone cheats. <laughs> and, uh, I realise my, my response has been quite long today, but there's kind of two domains I want to focus on here. So in my work, I would I'd particularly say my, my research supervisors and colleagues that I've, I work with on a day-to-day basis, uh, in particular, uh, David Todd at Liverpool John Moores uh, and Jose Molnar at the University of Worcester. Um, I'm really privileged to work with 
and alongside those those people, they question my ideas. They act as crit critical friends on the projects I'm involved with, and, and their work it inspires what I do. Uh, more generally, in life, someone that's always uh, um, inspired me, uh, and particularly at the moment, is I'm a huge cycling fan. So the Tour de France is on at the moment. Uh, Mark Cavendish is uh, my hero. At, you know, around my, my house, there's pictures everywhere of Mark Cavendish and he, he's truly inspirational story and the adversity is overcome to, you know, to now win 34 stages of the Tour de France is, is truly inspirational. So out, outside of more, in more general uh, terms, I'd say Mark Cavendish. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and question two is and my personal favourite. Um, a moment in your life that you didn't like at the time, but looking back, you know that positives came from it. Uh, it's a really good question. And it took quite a bit of reflection to think about this. And there was really one key moment that stood out for me. And this was a really critical, um, not very nice moment in my life. So as I mentioned uh, right at the start of this, uh, I was a rugby player and based my whole my whole background, my whole identity on being a rugby player. Uh, I played since the age of 11. Uh, and then eight years ago, I, I was involved in a rugby collision and I thought everything was fine at the time. I thought, uh, you know, everything will be fine. You know, I'll, I'll just go to the hospital and everything will be fine. You know, I'll be back next week. Um, and it resulted in me having my, the bottom of my right arm pinned back together, um, basically losing... Uh, use of, of part of my hand and in the end it resulted in, in me having to leave playing rugby and at that point in time it was the worst thing that could have happened but in reflection it actually allowed me to step away and actually some of the things I, I've mentioned today allowed me to broaden my identity to so identify other things that are important to me mm. uh, I got into focusing on different sports I got into focusing on different projects that I was interested in and I wouldn't have necessarily been interested in those things or engaged with those other sports had, had I not had that 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 really critical moment that real shift um uh, at that point mm. and that that's yeah thank you for sharing that it's kind of I have a um, similar story myself with I think I might have touched on this with you before but I um was also massively into rugby and it happened to me at a younger age but when I was 13 I broke my spine playing rugby and that meant that I wasn't allowed to stop playing and I was similar to you in the fact that I think I'm probably um fortunate that it happened to me at a younger age but I was it was my life it's who I was it was everything literally I was just a rugby player and then all of a sudden I was told I'm not allowed to play rugby anymore and it does you know it shows perfect example of what we're talking about today of you know when everything is lent on this one thing and then it goes it's it can really throw you into turmoil but yeah like you say it does it then kind of forces you to expand and you know you're you've expanded into doing all this amazing work that you're doing now and um yeah it's, it's really it's really nice to hear that you know that's why I love that question is because people go through the shit and then come out and say actually I'm kind of glad that happened so that's good yeah and, and now I wouldn't have had any of those experiences had I not, uh, you know, gone through, gone through, as you said, the, the, the shit was the shit mm. at the time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and the final question, question three is a phrase to live by. So th this took a little bit of reflection as well. Um, and 
what really highlighted, uh, if I go back to uh, the person that has inspired me, Mark Cavendish, he said very similar thing along a related line the other day in, in an interview. And uh, the quote that, that he said is, do not let anyone else or anything else define what you are or who you can become. And I think that really resonates with the area we've been speaking about today, really resonates with if I'm basing my identity, if I'm choosing an identity that's selected for me from society, you know, I'm adopting a muscular ideal because society has told me that's the way to be, has defined with who I can be as a, perhaps as a man. And so that, that really resonates with me, I think with the research area too. Mm. Um, and to, to add on to that, um, it, it's really identifying what interests you. And, and, and that was the real key point from this. What, what, are, what are my interests? Uh, mm. Hopefully that, that summarizes that. No, yeah, that's, that's, I really like that. And it's, it's quite hard, isn't it? I think um, there's something I've worked on a lot in counseling. It's something I've come across quite often with people who um, go into counseling and, and try and become more like self-aware and things like that as well is, is trying to figure out what you actually want to do. Like what is it you actually want? Cause it's so, cause everything influences you so much um, that it is so hard to, to, to do. And it's something you everyone should really explore. And I, yeah, I really like that, that phrase. It kind of sums that up nicely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Christian, for, for coming on today. I hope you had a good time. Uh, fantastic. Thank you, George. It was absolutely brilliant to be involved. Uh, and thank you very much. Uh, if you, anybody's interested in this area of research, uh, I'd be really happy for people to get in touch. Um, they get me on Twitter um, at uh, Chris J. Edward, uh, EDW, uh, or email. And I, I can put that in the, in the chat notes if you like. Yeah. Yeah. If you send me across um, all your information, I'll put everything in the description below. Um, so everyone just look down there and you'll, you'll be able to get in contact with Dr. Edwards. Um, everyone listening at home, thank you again so much for making it all the way through this episode. And I hope to see you at the next one. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at My Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out myminds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there. And we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.